Good morning. Uh, we're going to have our sermon reading now, and it's going to be 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 24. And it's entitled, David Spears Saul's Life. After Saul re returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of El Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and sent out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid me that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the, anoint the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen what men say? David is bent on harming you. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognise that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds so my hands will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he not let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well, for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king 
and that the king of, of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Thanks, Alison, uh, for reading that passage. It's a great passage, isn't it? Uh, my name's Pete Stacey. It uh, is great to be here in the morning on the evening passes. So I'm always here in the, the evenings, but it's great to be here with you this morning. It's good to remind ourselves, a uh, passage like this, that, that what we're reading is real history about real people and real places. Uh, I love the first two verses. Where we're told that David is in the desert of En Gedi uh, near the crags of the wild goats. Don't you just love that description? Sounds so good, doesn't it? Uh, en Gedi literally means uh, water or spring of the young goat. Um, it's one of the most popular tourist sites in Israel. Has anyone actually been to En Gedi? One? Yeah, so, so you know it better than I do. Uh, I've just seen photos. Uh, it's about halfway down the western side of the Dead Sea, and these barren, rocky mountains rise really quite high uh, from, the, from the, uh, the coast there. Uh, but at En Gedi, there's a natural spring flowing uh, from the mountains through a canyon, and it kind of creates this oasis at En Gedi. And it also supports one of Israel's largest uh, native animals, the ibex. Yeah, big horns. Look at that. Uh, I love this next photo. Aren't they just amazing? Incredible. Uh, the, the crags of the wild goats. That's the setting. Uh, and not only are we reading about real people and places and events, but the God who was there 3,000 years ago is the same God who is here with us today. It's the same God who made sure this story was recorded in his word so that, that, that for us today as we can hear him speak to us and to speak to our hearts. Well, let's ask him to do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Please help us to see your light and walk on your path. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, David grew up as a shepherd. He'd been doing that for a number of years. And he would have known every crevice and cave in these mountains. And somewhere in this barren wilderness... He and his men are hiding. Now, you might be wondering, why is he hiding? I mean, it's a good question because two weeks ago, in chapter 16, we saw that he was anointed to be the future king of Israel. And then last week in chapter 17, he won this great victory for the Israelites by defeating Goliath, the champion of the Philistines. Well, he's hiding because he's not king yet. And Saul, who, who is the king, wants to kill David. I see, David has been so successful in uh, military campaigns uh, and he's become really popular with the people. In fact, even Saul's own son, Jonathan, who, who would normally be the next king, uh, Jonathan had formed a covenant bond to support David. 
And then a few chapters ago, there's this funny situation where, where David actually won one of Saul's daughters in marriage. Saul had set it up as a bit of a death trap. But, you know, kind of David, with God's help, achieved the impossible. It all backfired and, and David got to marry Saul's own daughter. Uh, so Saul is kind of filled with a, a potent mix of jealousy, anger, fear and hatred. And a few times Saul nearly killed David himself. But David escaped and now Saul is hunting him down like a wild animal. At the end of the last chapter, David had a very narrow escape. Uh, As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are uh, raiding the land. And so Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. Now it sounds like just an amazing timing, you know, favourable coincidence. But it's interesting. Uh, In the Psalms, David attributes such rescues to the sovereign and merciful hand of God. And I think it would serve us well to recognise the sovereign and merciful hand of God more often in our own lives. As this chapter begins, David's hiding because Saul is after him again, uh, this time with 3,000 able young men from all Israel. Pretty threatening situation. Saul is just relentless, isn't he? Absolutely relentless. And poor David must have been so exhausted, so disheartened. He's in the wilderness literally, But we know from the Psalms that he wrote that he was emotionally in the wilderness as well. Just hanging on to God when it all just seemed so bleak and so hard. Listen to the opening of Psalm uh, 54, I think it is. No, 57. The subtitle actually says it's by David when he fled from Saul into the cave. How amazing that we have a bit of David's own personal prayer diary in the midst of this very scene. Look at these words. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. Not talking about the caves. In in God he takes refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. Wonderful words, isn't it? We often wish that somehow uh, life could be free from pain and struggle and, and that our next victory will somehow be a permanent victory. We wish that the trials and temptations and spiritual enemies that pursue us like Saul pursued David would simply go away and we wouldn't have to bother with them anymore. But even when we have a victory, those trials come back again and again and again. And friends, they'll keep coming back until we are with the Lord in heaven. That is the only permanent Victory, we will find. I love verse 3. Saul is busting. 
<laughs> and needs to relieve himself. So he goes into the very cave where David and his men are hiding. You see, God has orchestrated this whole scene. Uh, and it's a real test for David. When we face circumstances that test our faith, you know, like unfair treatment, for example, I think we respond in one of five ways. Fight, flight, freeze, folly or faith. Do you reckon you can remember that? I worked hard on that. Oh. We're tempted to, to lash out physically or, or at least verbally, you know, fight. Or we run from the problem and avoid the people involved and avoid eye contact, you know, for as long as we can. Flight. Sometimes we, we can be paralysed by fear and despair. Just feel frozen because of the situation. Or worse, we self-medicate with sinful pastimes to distract ourselves from the pain. Go down that path of folly. But God wants us to face hardship and trials and challenges and indeed all of life with faith, seeing and doing what is pleasing to him. Now let's see what David does in these circumstances. When we face a circumstances that test our faith, one of the great blessings is often the godly counsel of faithful friends. Have a look at what David's men say in verse 4. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, we don't know when God actually said that, uh, but it does describe this test of David's faith well. You see, Saul is in David's hands to deal with as he wishes. Now, I think David's men wanted him to seize this promise by faith and by the sword. Kill Saul and become the king he was anointed to be. Is that good advice? It makes sense of the circumstances, doesn't it? It would certainly put an end to this constant running for your life. And it would make his men happy. And let's face it, what leader doesn't want to make their people happy? What does David do? Well, he crept up unnoticed and got the sword in his hand and cuts off the corner of the robe. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I mean, it's, what's going on? And note David's response as soon as he's done it. Verse 5, he was conscience-stricken. He didn't even kill the man. He just cut off a little corner of his robe. He's conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. And there's the point. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. He didn't just not kill Saul himself. He made sure that no one else killed Saul. And in this moment, David is seeing the situation through the eyes of faith. Now, one of the Ten Commandments says, uh, do not commit murder. And Exodus 22 verse 28 says, Do not blaspheme God or curse the ruler of your people. 
Now, there may not be much to respect in Saul's character, but David has enormous respect for Saul's position because he's put there by God. And he shows extraordinary mercy to a man that has caused him so much personal grief. God had promised David the throne, but David refused to get it by disobeying anything else that God had said. He knew that God had placed Saul on the throne at this point and trusted that God would remove Saul from that throne in his timing. A thousand years before the uh, a thousand years before the Apostle Paul wrote, we live by faith, not by sight. David was a living example of it, wasn't he? The circumstances seemed to be leading in one direction. But David saw the light of God's word and it changed his view of the situation and he chose to walk on God's path. May God grant us the wisdom and the courage to respond to our circumstances, whatever they are, in the light of God's truth. Even when circumstances or, or even the people around us might suggest an alternative direction. Friends, let's seek God's will and go God's way. What happens next is really fascinating. Um, David could have kept quiet in the cave and Saul would have moved on unaware of what happened. And yeah, probably a few days later, oh, what's happened there? Must have snagged it on a whoa, very sharp bush. <laughs> but instead, David sees an opportunity here to, to right some wrongs and perhaps even restore a relationship. Look at his approach in verse 8. David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. That is a very vulnerable position. So respectful, so humble. Not a hint of arrogance or defiance. He genuinely honours and submits to Saul as God's appointed king. Friends, we need to be careful not to let the behaviour of other people dictate how we respond to them. We do it all the time, don't we? Someone's nasty and we justify being nasty back. Well, he's hit me first, or he, she said it first. Every person on the planet is fearfully and wonderfully made by God and bears his image. So friends, let us treat others with value and dignity, no matter what they've done to us. And if they're in a position of authority over us, let us recognise it and submit appropriately. I think there's a terrible trend in our culture to disrespect authority and cut down tall poppies. We kind of pride ourselves in it. I think two groups who suffer uh, particularly uh, from this in, in our culture are politicians and police. Friends, instead of being quick to criticise and to curse, let's pray for them. 
and do what we can to submit cheerfully to their authority. David shows great respect, but he doesn't ignore the problems either. And he addresses three issues. Uh, in verse 9, there's a defamation case going on here. Uh, some of Saul's men are telling lies about him and he sets the record straight. Verses 10 and 11, he proves his innocence and his trustworthiness and faithfulness by showing the corner of the robe. Imagine Saul in that moment. <laughs> Just realises that he has got away with his life. Then in verses 12 to 15, he point, David points Saul to God, reminding him that God is judge of all and will avenge all wrongs and deliver and uphold the righteous who trust in him. That's really honest. Respectful, but really honest. Reminds me of Paul's uh, words and encouragement to us to speak the truth in love. So often we do one or the other, don't we? Uh, you know, we, we speak the truth, all right. We kind of forget about love. Or, or we're so keen to be loving and gentle that we don't want to upset them with the truth. And both those options do harm to others. But speaking the truth in love opens the possibility for real change and growth and perhaps even reconciliation. Well, how does Saul respond? Verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? I mean, he's right in front of him. And he wept aloud. It looks like genuine repentance, doesn't it? It looks like a beautiful moment. It looks like David's kindness and mercy has won Saul over. And in the next few verses, he basically agrees with everything David had said. But don't be fooled. A couple of chapters later, he is back at it trying to kill David, hunting him down to take his life. It's a good reminder that feeling sorry is not the same as repentance. True repentance means a conscious determination to think and behave differently. It's something that God commands of us. <laughs> but it's also a gift he gives to his children. And that means that repentance for us is a partnership between each one of us and the Holy Spirit of God. Saul had a great outpouring of emotion on the outside, but not much was happening on the inside. His eyes may have been hot, but his heart was cold. We get an idea of what he values most in verse 21. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. He's only worried about himself and his reputation and his name being carried on by his descendants. Now, in those days, when a king was displaced by an unrelated 
person. Often the new king would kill out the descendants of the previous king. But here David has just spared Saul's life. It's highly unlikely that something like that's going to happen. What I find amazing is that, that David actually agrees to this oath. And he swears an oath before God, promising never to kill Saul's descendants or wipe out his reputation. And the absolute tragedy is that it ends up being Saul's actions that lead to the death of his dynasty and all but one of his descendants. Made David swear an oath, but he was the one that broke it. And you know, the, the one that survived was a crippled grandchild. And guess who took him in? David, when he became king, in an act of beautiful grace, David welcomed him into the royal palace where he was treated like a son. Here we see two men on completely different trajectories, different paths in life. Saul has self on the throne of his heart. He's ignoring God. He's trying to control everyone and everything to suit his own plans. But his life is an absolute mess. David has God on the throne of his heart. And he's self-disciplined. And he trusts God to control everything and everyone according to God's wonderful plan. David seeks to obey God and trust God, no matter what the circumstances, even if it means hardship for himself. And because of these differences, David does not return with Saul right at the end of the chapter there. It simply wouldn't be safe. He goes back to his mountain stronghold instead. Saul had the appearance of repentance, but true repentance takes considerable time to observe properly. And it makes me think of the, the wisdom, particularly in situations of domestic violence, where separation is often necessary to promote the safety of individuals and to provide offenders with a space and time they need to seek help and truly repent As we've gone through this chapter, there's, there's so much we can learn from. And so much we haven't touched on as well. As we see David striving to be faithful to God in these strange wilderness years before being crowned as king. And it's a good reminder for us that following God, the Christian life, involves hardship and trial and suffering before our glory with our king in heaven. Paul said these words, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Our struggles are real. And sometimes our struggles are very hard, but they're not eternal. Like David, we need to keep trusting God and his timing. This time in David's life also points us to a greater king. The anointed king, Jesus. He also experienced temptation in the wilderness, didn't he? He experienced great temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. But instead of grabbing what God had promised, 
in his own strength. He chose to trust God's plan and to trust God's timing. The writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus like this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus can help us in our struggles. In fact, it is his obedience in dying on the cross that means we can be forgiven when we fail to obey. Just like David, Jesus suffered before his glory, his glorious resurrection and return to the Father's side. And because he paid for our sin on the cross and conquered death itself, we can face all the challenges and temptations of life with the confidence that not only does he walk with us every step of the way through them, but he will bring us to everlasting glory with him. Amen.